Hello, all of you curiously minded peeps. Welcome to yet another lovely episode of Little Curiosities. I'm your host, Kendall Long. You know, that one taxidermy loving chick from The Bachelor? That's me. And on that lovely rose-filled show, I was on a quest, a quest for love. But on this podcast, I'm on a whole different kind of quest, the quest for knowledge. So today I have a wonderfully knowledgeable guest on the show to talk all about plant deception. He's the host of the podcast, Crime Pays That Botany Doesn't, Joey Santor. Plants are tricky little buggers. They imitate wasps. They disguise themselves as rocks. So they have a few tricks up their sleeve when it comes to making sure they get pollinated or their seeds get spread or they don't get eaten. Because what would you do if you were stuck in one place, unable to move for your entire life? And I really had such a fun time with this conversation with Joey because you can tell he's just a guy that oozes passion for botany and he literally knows all the Latin names for plants which I find to be absolutely impressive. So without further ado, let's get to the episode. Also, before the episode starts, if you could make sure to subscribe to Little Curiosities so you don't miss a single one of these fact-filled episodes, that would mean so much. Also, don't forget to leave a review. I love listening to all your reviews and seeing how you feel about the podcast. Do you have any ideas? How do you want to be a part of the podcast? Please let me know. Also, rate us. You know, it's a new podcast, so everything you can do to get our name out there really helps us out. So thank you so much. On to the episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Little Curiosities. And I'm really excited for this episode because with me, I have Joey Santor. He is the host of the podcast Crime Pays, But Botany Doesn't. I've listened to so many of his episodes. I love his podcast. And so he's here to talk all about plants, more specifically, plant deception, because plants can get tricky. So hello, Joey. Welcome to Little Curiosities. Hi, thank you for having me on. How's it going? It's going really well, really well. I just got back from Madagascar. I have a little bit of a cold, so I'm not sure if my voice might be a little bit lost. But yeah, and there was a lot of plants there. So it got me ready for this episode. Okay, yeah. I'd love to go there someday because I like dry plants, especially drought-adapted plants, and there's a ton there. So uh... There are because, interestingly enough, a huge part of it is dry. It's like a desert. You wouldn't think that. Mm. But I brought you on today to talk about plant deception. I've listened to one of your episodes where you were talking about orchids that do some plant deceiving. But before we get into that, I want to ask you, how did you get into botany in the first place? Oh, God. I, you know, I think it's it started, well, I lived in California, and um, it really started through geology, I guess. That was my main interest in science. I was traveling around and you know, we'd see a road cut uh, either on the railroad or the highway, and then I would just be curious why the rocks looked like that. So, you know, I decided I didn't really want to be a part of academia at all, but I was still really curious. So I was working at the railroad for the time and just took a couple community college courses in geology, just basic elementary geology. No intention of, you know, getting a degree, just wanted to learn. And then, you know, when I learned about that and learned about the geologic time scale through basic rock types, it just got me more into getting outside and paying attention to my surroundings when I was in quote unquote nature. And then I started eventually just paying attention to plants. And one thing led to another and they were just every, you know, I just, it was mainly just asking questions and every answer I'd get would open up 10 more questions. And California is a hotspot for plant biodiversity. And so I got bit by the bug, as they say. 
I also grew up in California and there is like you have the ocean, you have the mountains, you have the desert. So there is a lot to see just nature wise in California. Oh yeah. Diversity of habitat. Yeah. Yeah. So what was your first plant that kind of was like your gateway plant that really like awoke your passion for botany? Honestly, I I guess I've never thought about it like that before, but it was just redwood. Someone told me you could clip a redwood sprout and root it and turn it into a tree and I did that and it was, I just thought it was so cool. And then I started learning. I focused on, you know, conifers, especially the more lower latitude tropical ones and the really old ones that, you know, have a fossil record going back to the Jurassic or the Triassic in some cases and just got obsessed and wanted to learn more. And and so just started on this kind of choose your own adventure book of self-education. And, you know, you, everyone I know that does that tends to start in one group and then go to others. Like someone starts in bromeliads or cacti. And pretty soon, because of how interconnected everything is, there's so many different factors at play in an ecosystem. You start, you know, learning about other plants that are out there. And so that's what I started doing. I started with, with conifers, went to manzanitas, you know, which are a really emblematic group of plants in California, tons of species in that genus. And then I just went down this uh, wormhole, I guess. And it was so fulfilling that, you know, I was working for the railroad at the time, but it, it was so fulfilling that eventually I was, you know, I was in the locomotive cab reading research papers and textbooks and, you know, learn how to get textbooks for free online. I just had so many questions. It was just so fulfilling. It's so awesome. I feel like I can relate to you in that sense where I don't have any academia or background in uh, my passions as well, but it's just asking questions and wanting to know more about stuff that you see all around you. I feel like that is such like a rewarding way of researching different topics because you can dive all over the place. It's that childlike curiosity, you know, and that's what those are the people that still have that into adulthood or the people I like to surround myself with, the people that just accept things and don't question them and are have no curiosity that they're the people I tend to avoid. You know, <laughs> those are like, yeah, I don't know. I agree because then it, there's no such thing as a stupid question, right? Whenever I am around people who have like the same curiosity, I don't know. It just builds like such a, so I'm glad you're on this podcast. I'm glad I'm talking to you because we are like-minded in that way. <laughs> yeah. Nothing's ever boring when you're always asking questions, you know, as long as you're like that kid who's in the backyard lifting up rocks to look at roly polies. Yes, you know? exactly. That was me. That was me as a kid. As a kid, do you have any memories of, like, were you a tree climber as a kid? Like, do you ever have a connection with nature in that way? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was climbing trees. It was always climbing stuff. I loved climbing. Later yeah. on, when I, you know, got into uh, graffiti, it, I was, you know, climbing abandoned buildings. But as a kid, you know, being in nature, it, <laughs> it was trees, trees. Or, or, or people's backyards. I mean, where I grew up in Chicago, it was all suburban. There wasn't much nature left. You know, yeah, it was always climbing, always getting into stuff. What I will say was... When I'd be driving with my mom, you know, we'd drive past this quarry. You know, Chicago area has got a lot of limestone quarries. And there was one right off I-55, the highway there. And there was, you know, we'd drive past this huge hole in the ground. And my mom would tell me about the limestone was is made of these 400 million year old, basically fossilized bodies of these single celled organisms that made their shells out of calcium carbonate or limestone. You know, she was a public school teacher. So yeah. that I couldn't grasp that as a kid, but just having it told to me and reinforced that maybe lit the first spark the concept was just so abstract and wild you know such old yeah. rocks and i think that early on being told that kind of stuff just really you know inspired the fascination with it wanting to learn more so and how about at home do you like have plants all around you at home do you have a green thumb at all do you garden do you bring it inside yeah, but i don't plant things in my yard for aesthetic purposes i plant them more the way that a university might use a greenhouse it's a research 
lab. So I like having plants in front of me so I can become acquainted with them, see, you know, what's pollinating them, see how they grow. I think growing things from seeds is a great way to get to actually know a plant and and observe it throughout its life. I like just growing a bunch of stuff and giving, you know, growing more than I need, giving it away, whatever. But I think having a yard where you can observe all these things, having a diverse yard with a diversity of species is a great way to teach yourself a lot of things and also see what pollinates them, see what birds are attracted to them to eat the seeds, etc. Yeah, so speaking of seeds or fruit that attract birds and all these things, the reason why I wanted to talk to you today is because of plant deception. And I think that fruiting trees, would that be something that would be considered a plant deception in some ways? I think that's more just a plant, you know, enrolling an animal to disperse its seed. I mean, but first off, we should be clear though, every flower produces a fruit. And people hear the word fruit and they think, you know, something edible and, you know, like an apple. But I mean, a dry capsule that just splits open along the seams, that's technically a fruit too. So fruit is just, you know, the word for what a flower, if it's pollinated, will turn into. It's a fruit that holds seeds. So it's more just plants enlist animal dispersers, whether it's, you know, primates or whether it's more typically birds to help disperse their seeds, you know, by wrapping it in this often like for a bird, you know, a bright red berry, a bright red Mm -hmm. berry, bird goes to eat the berry, seed passes right through, it poops out the seed, or maybe the bird's a messy eater. And so it ends up, you know, a lot of mistletoes will do that sometimes too. The bird will get this berry and then, you know, end up wiping it off if you know it gets stuck on the bird's beak it wipes its beak on a twig of you know of, a, of the host tree for a mistletoe because mistletoes are parasites and the seed ends up germinating on the twig and so it's the seeds are sticky they're covered in this you know like mucilaginous stuff so when that evolved you know when flowering plants evolved i mean not just the flower luring animals and insects in to pollinate the flower but also to disperse the seeds for it that was such a key innovation i mean 125 million years ago when it evolved that just took off and so that's why you know the majority of plants we have today are flowering plants as opposed to conifers Oh, man. Okay, so I didn't know that. I didn't know that if it didn't have, say, like a big fleshy exterior, it was still considered a fruit. So fruits aren't necessarily considered deceptive, but how are some ways that plants do deceive? Oh, God, there's a number of ways. They're tricky little bastards. What are the two main purposes of deception, right? It's pollination to reproduce or to hide or defenses, to hide from something that wants to eat you. And there's a number of fascinating ways that plants do both. For pollination, there's plants that I think of some of the terrestrial orchids in Australia, for example, but there's orchids here that do the same thing. The ones in Australia just happen to be some of the the most wily about it. Orchids that produce flowers that mimic female wasps or female members of a certain insect species in order to get the males to come try and mate with them and then end up collecting the pollen grains of the orchid, which are packaged in these two little packages called pollinia, and then carrying them off to another flower. And not only does the orchid look, it produces a labellum. You know, all orchids tend to have a labellum structure that is the part that they embellish. It's, you know, really goes beyond just being, it's technically a petal, but it goes beyond being just an ordinary petal. I mean, these some of these labella in different orchids can look wild. I mean, remarkable, you know, highly ornate. And so these orchids in Australia, these terrestrial orchids, you know, as opposed to being an epiphyte, they grow on a tree or a rock. These are orchids that grow in the ground. And they've got a little tuber that they can die back to during the dry season. They have these labella that resemble a female member of this uh, insect species. But on top of that, they also have been found to produce pheromones. So they're producing scents that 
mimic the pheromones that uh, a female member of this insect species, whether it's a wasp or whatever, produces. So it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, it is remarkable because when I think of plants, I don't necessarily think, how can they know what a certain wasp species looks like? How do they know how to mimic something like that? Do they have eyes? Like, how do they know how to mimic a smell? Do they have noses? Like, is there any research on how that's possible? Humans tend to think on terms of a human lifespan, right? We don't really tend to zoom out and look at the bigger picture, whether it's spatially or temporally, you know, in terms of time. So we think, how does this happen? It's so hard to imagine, but you have to think of chance mutations covered by vast amounts of time. But you know, for a lot of people, that doesn't do it. It's like, I don't get it. It's just random mutations. Is it really? It I mean, how is it, how is it, how is it so random? It looks just like a female member of this wasp species. How can that be random? You know, that's natural selection, right? It is random, yeah. but you're also, you're not seeing all the times that different mutations failed or caused the plant to not be able to adapt or just cause duds, whatever. You don't see all the duds. You just see the fireworks. When you compare that and you think about artificial selection, which is what humans have done very many times over the last 10,000 years, for example, since agriculture evolved. When you think about artificial selection, you get kind of a lens into how natural selection works. And so when you think about brassica, kale, broccoli, they're all technically the same species. That's the amount of variation you can get in a single species, brassica oleracea. When you think about poodles, pugs, chihuahuas, great danes, greyhounds, that's all the same species, species being a wolf. Then you, but it's just the result of, in the case of your breeding tomatoes for a very hot environment, tomatoes don't tend to like excess heat, like Phoenix style heat. If you're breeding tomatoes for that, you, you germinate thousand tomato seeds, you subject them to excess heat, 95% die. The 5% that don't die, you then select those and you breed those. And you just keep doing that over and over again until you end up with a phenotype, a member of that species that has what it takes to adapt to the environment. So that's kind of what's going on with these orchids is this is the result of probably millions of years and lots of incremental baby steps, none of which we see, right? Because maybe the baby step, the, the intermediates are extinct now, or they just didn't, whatever. But that's how it works. And when you start to see that and think about it through that lens, then it starts to be easier to comprehend. Another case, there are plants that look like rocks, you know, and I get that all the time. I'll show, you know, show people plants that look like rocks. Well, how does a plant know what a rock is? Well, it doesn't. The environment selects for it. Whereas the environment is that kind of rock, whether it's limestone or like a bright red iron rich pebble or whatever is dominant in the environment, you know, and then the weather pattern, whatever, the environment's selecting for these things. And one trait that might, you know, make it look like a rock might also benefit it in another way. Yeah. And so that's why that trade originally evolved. And then it just happens to have this byproduct that also benefits it. And then that gets selected for. And so it's it's really a matter of just mutation and time. It can be quantifiable and observable when you look at DNA and, and even on a, a micro level, you know, looking at bacteria. Bacteria evolve really quickly. I feel like humans are just so impatient. And also we're so, like, we depend so heavily on seeing. So if we don't think like a plant in a way, it seems like it's something impossible, but you're right. It just takes a lot of time, a lot of trial and error. Um, things like flowers easily fossilized. Is that something that you can see traces of like dating way yeah. back? Yeah. yeah. It requires all the right conditions and you only get fossils mostly just out of sedimentary rock, you know, as opposed to volcanic or metamorphic, but it, it requires all the right conditions. But I mean, there's a number of fossil flowers. That's what scientists use to calibrate with things like molecular clock dating, which is a lot 
more complicated, but basically you look at, think of it like a barcode, the barcode produced by one species and you compare it with another species that's somewhat closely related to it. You see where they differ and then you calibrate for how those different bars, those different mutations, you know, might change over time, you know, think of the you know mutation rates and you can in a way start to look back and see when those two species diverged whatever and then you calibrate that with ages and fossil ages and etc but there's definitely a great number of fossil flowers the oldest fossil flower that we have is i think 125 million years old and pollen can be fossilized they're micro fossils but they're there and they're observable the oldest fossil pollen is much older i believe so we have the smoking gun but we don't have the gun you know so right. that's how we know flowering plants are 125 million years old, but there's, you know, fossil pollen from much, much longer. With things like being able to evolve, like very specifically to look like a wasp, it seems like diversity is extremely important because it's trial and error. And being able to have a bunch of different avenues to go down makes it so eventually it can be something that works so perfectly. Although nothing works so perfectly in the world of evolution. What are your thoughts on uh, biodiversity of plants? What that's really about and why I always try to stress to people why biodiversity is important is, as always, I use the analysis or the metaphor of a, uh, a Jenga tower, right? Like a Jenga tower is composed of a bunch of different bricks, and you may not be able to see why these wooden bricks, these wooden blocks are important at first, why each one is important. But when you start removing them, you start to see the Jenga tower start to wobble, kind of akin to what humanity's doing right now. But my hope is that we'll eventually, you know, get our act together and realize that and figure it out as a yeah. civilization. But biodiversity, you know, it's everything's connected. And and you know, you see these called cascades. I mean, you see these cascading effects of you remove one thing that seems inconsequential, but without understanding fully what it does in an ecosystem, that it maybe this one insect that's now gone was pollinating this flower. Now the flower's gone. The flower in turn produced fruit uh, that was that fed a certain mammal. Now the mammals go, I mean, things just yeah. start dropping out. So yeah, they're seeing a lot of that in Madagascar because it is like a island and they're seeing that if one species goes away, it affects so many others. And right. it is really like a chain reaction of that. And humans rely heavily on plants, not only for eating, but for oxygen, like a lot of different things. But Back to the topic of like deception, do you feel like there's plants that can actually deceive us? Oh, yeah. There's a great case. There was an article that came out in National Geographic. I forget how long ago it was, maybe three or four years, but it, it's actually, it's a great case of what I'm talking about. I, I don't know whether to call it natural selection or artificial selection because it's both, but it's a species in the genus Fritillaria, which is in the lily family. Beautiful flowers. I mean, these are like really showy. There's a number of fritillaria species in California, which are endemic and highly specialized to certain uh, rock outcrops or locations. But this is a species of fritillaria in China that grows in these kind of talus slopes. I forget the name of it. It begins with a D. Yeah, fritillaria delavii. Delavii? They're always so difficult but, to pronounce. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's Latin. If anyone tries to correct your Latin, I mean, it's, right. if they're trying to correct it because there's an easier way to say it, sure. But if they're trying to correct it because it's, you know, oh, it's not the way you say it, it's whatever. Who cares? Ignore yeah. them. But it's a dead language. But this plant is believed to, you know, have some sort of herbal remedy or medicinal benefit. Who knows? I don't, I don't know if it's backed up by actual chemistry. But regardless, it was being harvested. Basically, what people were doing when they harvested it was they were selecting for the plants that were easy to spot, that were easy to see, easy for human eyes to see. So what you started getting mm. was plants that had leaves that resembled the talus piles, the rock that they were grown in. So 
that's a great case. I mean, it's remarkable too. Even in California, you got a number of plants that do this, that they grow in these barren environments. They're, you know, if you grow in a spot where not a lot of other things grow, and the desert plants deal with this all the time. This is why they've evolved all these defenses and ways to hide. If you grow in a relatively barren spot, uh, you're going to be one of the main things on the menu. There's not right. much to eat there. There's not, you know, whereas if you grow in like a mesic woodland that's really dense and rich and there's a bunch of stuff to chew on, there's not as much pressure on you. But if you're one of the only things that's in this relatively barren spot, you've got to come up with some kind of gimmick to not get eaten. So there's a number of plants and there's a great one, Atricoceros platyphylla. It's A-T-R-I-C-H-O-S-E-R-I-S. It's a chicory. It's in the chicory lineage of the sunflower family, Asteraceae, because chicory is chicories are just sunflowers. They're in that family. Okay. And it's got these kind of rubbery leaves that are filled with this nasty wax. And they produce a white latex that's really bitter and they grow in Riverside and San Bernardino County, the eastern counties, and in the deserts, and they resemble, the leaves are remarkable. I mean, they're speckled with all different, they basically resemble gravel beds, you know, so the leaves, I mean, and it's happened to be where I'm standing right above these things, and I know they're there, I just saw another one, but I went to get my camera out, and I turned my head away for a minute, and now I'm looking again, it takes me a few seconds to find it, because I can't so find it. So they're different colors, but is it difficult for plants like that to photosynthesize? Do they have to sacrifice that in order to blend in? No, because they've still got chlorophyll in there. You know, the colors that we're seeing are other pigments that are in there along with the chlorophyll. So plants can be red. I mean, you get that a lot. Plants might have red leaves, but they're still photosynthetic. There's still chlorophyll in the cells. There's just, a you know, an abundance of anthocyanin pigments. Or in the case of, like, uh, members of the cactus order, they produce betalane pigments instead of anthocyanins. It's just a red pigment. It's like a fill-in for anthocyanins. So there's still chlorophyll in there, but there are plants that don't produce any chlorophyll at all that are out there too. That's interesting. I did also hear that there was a certain leaf that resembled um, bird droppings on the leaf. I think it was called South African Restiad or something. Oh, Restios. Yeah. Oh, wow. I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, it was interesting because like, they said that the leaves would mimic like bird droppings or they thought maybe it was some kind of fungus to try to make animals not eat them because there's bacteria in bird droppings. So it's really fascinating to like see that they can mimic things like rocks or bird droppings. Do you have like any other examples of like a chameleon type plant, one that tries to blend into its surroundings? Oh, yeah. The living rock cacti. I mean, there's a number of cactus and succulents that do this and that resemble rocks because, you know, cacti grow in deserts. They, yeah. you know, that's the whole benefit of having all that And there's that a lot storage. of water in them for thirsty animals, I'm storage, sure. Storage succulent tissue, right. The genus Areocarpus, the living rock cacti, there's there's a species of, in that. They're all throughout Mexico. And then there's one species in Texas, but they really look like rocks. It's remarkable. There's a species we get in West Texas that does that, Areocarpus fissuratus, and you can't see them. You'll be standing right on top of them, but they grow in these limestone deserts. The rock is limestone, so it's like a whitish gray, and uh, they kind of recess into the ground, so they're almost you know flat with the ground, and they, they resemble limestone talus. It's remarkable. There's another species in that genus from Nuevo Leon, Areocarpus scaphirostris, northern Mexico. That's the same thing, but it doesn't grow in limestone. It grows in these like dark gray shale beds, basically, you know, old lithified mud, oceanic mud from 50 million years ago. Maybe I think it's a little bit older. It's, it's before yeah. the dinosaurs got knocked up. But anyway, but this plant is, it takes it to a, an even higher extreme. It resembles a cactus is just a photosynthetic stem, right? 
On this photosynthetic stem, it's got these tubercles, which are little kind of protuberances that are evenly spaced in a spiral around the, the apex of the stem. The tubercles, in the case of Aerocarpus scaphirostris, look like little bits of this shale talus. Mm. So much so that I was showing people, I had a presentation a week ago, and I was showing people a photograph of the plant, and they said, where's the plant? The camera's five inches away from it. They couldn't see it. I had to highlight it for them. It was like, oh, that, yeah, there you go. That's a successful job. That's a successful yeah. job for the plant. So there's a lot of plants that want to blend into their environment, but what about ones that use trickery to like really stand out, like they want to be seen? Oh, I guess just to be more conspicuous? The main reasons you'd want to be conspicuous are you know, for flowering. Or yeah. for fruit, you know, to get your fruit noticed in the case, you know, in the case of uh, it's another cactus, actually, it's a Pinocerius. It looks like a twig. It's a very elongated, maybe one inch wide by up to three feet long in some cases. Pinocerius gregorii, it's a genus, so there's a few other species. Pinocerius gregorii, I believe, is the one you get in Arizona. But same thing, it's moth-pollinated, so it produces this white flower. When it's not flowering or fruiting, it's nearly impossible to see. It just grows up amidst these shrubs, and you'd think it was just a dead twig, you know, an old dead branch or twig or something. But when it's uh, flowering, it's really showy. It's Obviously, it's big white flower. And then when it's in fruit, it's even more showy. The fruit is this bright red berry. And so it's obviously very conspicuous to birds, which are one of its main dispersers. And so you see that a lot, you know, especially with bird dispersed fruits, bright red fruits that are just basically big flags to the birds that it evolved with dispersing. In the case of like the orchids, they want to look like a wasp. Are there any other plants that mimic other plants because they want to be eaten or they want to have like seed dispersal as well? Yeah, there are orchids actually that resemble. Well, that's another thing, right? There's that it's the orchids are super tricky. There's an orchid. There's probably quite a few more plants that do this. There's an orchid in Western Australia, the donkey orchid, that's thought to mimic members of the legume family that produce a flower that looks remarkably similar to it in color and shape. So you know, legumes, peas have this really distinct flower morphology. You know, they would so much so that you can travel. 8,000 miles away to another continent. And if I see a member of the pea family that's in flower, that's got this flower structure, I'll be able to know that's the legume. I start, if I don't know what it is, I know where to start looking. But this orchid, because this, and I presume it's because this pea in Western Australia has such a, a tight connection with the pollinators, and it's so well known among the insects that pollinate down there that this orchid can save itself the trouble of having to produce nectar or intense pheromones or anything like that by just looking like one of these flowers and a completely oh. unrelated plant that also grows in that same habitat. So it's false advertising, but it works, you know, and it's, yeah, it's and of course you don't have to expend the caloric expenditures to produce nectar or pheromones. So that's one case of it. And I think mm -hmm. you see that a lot. I mean, you'll see flowers that mimic or seem like they're mimicking other flowers that are producing nectar, even though that flower itself may not be. There's this one plant that called a barnyard grass that looks indistinguishable from rice because when they would plant them in like these rice patties, they would usually pull out the weeds, but the weeds have evolved to look like rice so they can stay in those little rice patties. Oh, wow. I hadn't heard about that, but that's a, yeah, that's right there. Again, you call that natural or artificial selection, you know? I almost it's feel like it of, has to be like a little bit of both. It's totally both. Yeah, it's remarkable. Yeah. They've selected for the plant that mimics the plant they're trying to keep around. 
Yeah, and it's a way for them to thrive. How about carnivorous plants? Because I know that carnivorous plants are the opposite of what any kind of bug wants to get into because as soon as they're trapped in there, they're done. So how does a carnivorous plant really use deception in order to get its next meal, the nutrients that it needs from a fly? Carnivorous plants, they tend to grow in nutrient-poor soils. That's why they evolve. But um, normally they're using, you know, there's plants, like a lot of pitcher plants will use nectar, or like Nepenthes, too, will use nectar sometimes to trap insects. The Another unrelated plant that we call pitcher plant, not related to the American pitcher plants. So they'll secrete nectar, but there's actually a few that will secrete scents that are just attractive. Now, does that scent mimic a floral scent that maybe that insect is used to pollinating? I'm, I don't know. But they are emitting that scent, and it's presumably there for a reason. That's why it's stuck around evolutionarily, right? It's not just producing that with no benefit. It would eventually get filtered out. So that's a number of ways, you know, there's pinguiculus butterworts that just have, you know, sticky leaves. There's the Venus flytrap, for instance, uh, you know, what is that secreting to get insects in there? Is that a, is it a, a scent? Is it a nectar? These are things that once that evolves, it's so beneficial that it ends up spreading pretty rapidly throughout a population. This mutation, in the case of an individual plant, the, the species, it spreads pretty rapidly. It's got such a, a key innovation, such a benefit, it gets accentuated within a landscape. Yeah, and you said they grow in nutrient-poor environments, right? So would they be mm -hmm. able to survive like, without having the source of nutrients from living prey? I think so. Like if they were supplemented with fertilizer or something, somewhat. I know there's certain plants that have evolved to nutrient-poor soils, like some of the proteas, you know, proteaceae is the family. You'll see proteas flowers being sold in flower shops as bouquets and stuff. But I know those, for instance, they've come up with a specific root structure to get around the nutrient-poor soils, you know. So if you grow them in a landscape, in a garden setting, and you give them phosphorus or over-fertilized, they die pretty quickly. They just, they're not adapted to it. Yeah. And also what's interesting with Venus flytraps is that they can move so quickly, which is something you don't really right. see plants doing too often. Like actually having the ability to like snap closed fast enough to catch a fly. Cause I can't even catch a fly when I try to like clap my hands together. Right. So how could a plant move so fast? It's all just turgor pressure. You know, it's just you've got water in your cells and you can quickly shift them from one cell to another in a way that, you know, you've got more pressure on one side of a structure. And so it ends up causing that to close. Another great case of turgor pressure, I was going to say, are the trigger plants from Australia. You know, these are plants that are in the same order as sunflowers and they've got a really specific floral morphology. That's why they call them trigger plants. They've got this thing called a column. You know, they got four petals, and then they've got this column that just snaps closed really quick and hits a pollinator, an insect, with the column. It's like this little beaded structure, and they can move really fast. Whenever I go to Australia, I'm always up there trying to, you know, play with them. Like, you could trigger them yourself, and it's the same oh. thing. It's just using turgor pressure. It's just shifting water. You've got cells without any water or with low water and then you've got cells that are just full of water and then you open you know the valve in between those two cells and it lets that water in really dramatically and really quickly and then causes movement in the plant but the trigger plants are remarkable because they're just so species rich and there's so many different kinds and they've again they've adapted to these nutrient poor soils in some cases so they're snapping closed on these insects to pollinate them. And then, of course, you wait a few minutes and the, the trigger actually resets. It'll reset itself. There's been studies on them because some of them have really sticky hairs on the stems and the 
I think the stems primarily, maybe the leaves too, you know, insects will get trapped in those, you know, and how does that evolve? Is it, is it the uh, plant is protecting itself by being sticky? So the benefit of this, why it evolves is that it's keeping insects off of it, but eventually, you know, the plant starts producing enzymes that can actually digest the insects so it can get the nitrogen off of them. It's a really remarkable thing. There was another plant, yeah. I think it was Triantha. It was another plant in, in Northern California that wasn't thought to be carnivorous. And then a, a guy I know, actually, Tom Givnish, did studies on it and figured out this thing, it's an aquatic, generally aquatic wetter soil plant is actually digesting these insects. They did carbon isotope analysis and were seeing that the they tagged these insects with an isotope. And they were seeing that that was popping up a few weeks later on in the plant. So it was actually using the nitrogen from these insect carcasses. Oh, wow. So that's kind of maybe like a the missing link between something like the Venus flytrap, like seeing that it can dissolve them like outside of like some sort of trapping mechanism. Yeah, like sticky hair is like a sundew or something. You know, that's a the sundews do that, the drosseras, they trap insects and then just end up secreting enzymes in the tissue and absorbing the, the nutrients. A really curious case of carnivory, though, is a plant called Rorigula, R-O-R-I-D-U-L-A from South Africa. It's two species. They're both endemic to South Africa. They don't grow anywhere else. I call it the flypaper plant because it grows in these, one grows in relatively dry environments. It doesn't grow in wet soils, which is unusual for a lot of carnivorous plants. It grows mm -hmm. in dry, but again, nutrient-poor soils. And the leaves just feel like flypaper. You know, they're not juicy. They're actually sticky. It's like a sticky adhesive. And they're really pretty plants, too. They get upwards of three or four foot tall. They've got these bright pink flowers on it with these kind of inflated anthers. They're remarkable. But what's remarkable about that species of carnivorous plant, Rorigula, is that it's co-evolved. It's not directly absorbing the nutrients, okay? So, like, insects get stuck on it, and it doesn't absorb the insect through the tissue. It's, it relies on another insect which has evolved to be able to walk across its these plant tissues without getting oh. stuck. And so this is a great case of coevolution. The insect, you know, lives, it's obligate to this plant, to these rorigula plants. And so this insect is a predatory insect. It eats the insects that get stuck on rorigula and then it poops. <laughs> And the poop is what benefits the plant. That's, That's the source so of nitrogen. Interesting. This plant uses the middleman, but how did this evolve? How long have they been intertwined coevolutionarily? Right. It's a totally remarkable yeah. case. Yeah. Do you feel like a lot of these species specific? You know, like they evolve so species specific. Do you know other like any other examples of that case where there's like species specific? plants that like use mimicry to try to, well, I guess in the case of the orchid, where they're specifically mimicking one type of wasp in order to pollinate it. But the wasp can get by without the orchid. The wasp doesn't need the orchid. The orchid needs the wasp. There's right. certainly, there's multiple, there's got to be thousands of cases of, of coevolution and specificity. Of course, not all of them involve mimicry, but a great case of coevolution and specificity would be in yucca, which of course, you know, most people that that live in California. Now, I mean, yuccas are throughout North America. We get some in the Midwest, we get some in the East Coast, get a lot in Texas where I am now, but yuccas can only be pollinated by yucca moths. So they've mm. got an obligate relationship with these moths. And the, it's funny how it works out. The female yucca moth pollinates the yucca flowers. And then if you want to think of it like this, it's a great sense case of mutualism. The female yucca moth pollinates the flowers and then the yucca, you know, will let the female yucca moth's larva 
eat some of the seeds. They don't eat all the seeds once the fruit matures, but they eat some of them. So, you know, yuccas produce this little three-chambered dry fruit. It's a dry fruit. If you crack it open, they crack open when they're done and release all these little black flaky seeds. If you're like in Joshua Tree or something, you look at one, crack it open, probably a good number, like a third, will have holes in them. They've, you know, been eaten. You can tell some got in there. That's a yucca moth larvae. So oh. uh, the pollination of these flowers is actually kind of involved because, you know, floral parts of plants have a the female part of the flower it's not just that pollen needs to touch it like in most flowers like in a sunflower something so, you know pollen just has to touch that stigma and then pollination occurs the pollen right. actually has to be stuffed inside this little hole by the female yucca moth so it's a pretty involved process and they, they're bloom oh. at night you know and she's out there she'll collect pollen from a plant and then go look for another flower of the same plant to go stuff the little pollen in there and then she stuffs it in there and then she lays some eggs in there too and then voila it's done oh it's kind of similar to a fig in a way with those really right. tiny wasps, the wasps that come in and pollinate it's like an inside out flower i've heard is how it's described yeah, exactly with the fig. And there's actually like a little hole where the maturing fruit or immature fruit where the wasp can fly into. And then, yeah. It is really insane. It's insane that plants have been able to mimic certain things in order to get what they need out of life because they are so, they stay in one place. They don't move around too fast. Right. So do you feel like they more highly depend on things like camouflage or mimicry in order to thrive in their environments? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Camouflage. I mean, any defenses, right? It's it's mostly anything to defend yourself or make sure you reproduce. You know, you're able to enlist insects or animals or whatever to help you reproduce. Some you just use wind. That's easy. But no matter what, it all comes down to defense and reproduction. And whether you employ spines or toxic chemicals or camouflage or whatever, you got to find something. But if it works, it works. And once it works, then there's an adaptive benefit to it. And that will spread, you know, the environment will select for that so that that becomes a more predominant trait. And how do you feel about plants having feelings or emotions? I mean, you do a lot of research with plants and botany. Do you feel like plants have any sort of inner happenings like that, like sentience? Depends on how many psychedelic mushrooms I took at a certain particular <laughs> point in time. No, I mean, jokes aside, I don't... I would say no. I mean, I, I think, you know, as humans, we tend to anthropomorphize. We tend to think of everything, right. you know, in a certain way. But when you really zoom out, you know, and you start looking at the larger biosphere, you realize there's many different ways that what we call communication can occur. And it, it doesn't necessarily occur with, obviously, language or, you know, complex thoughts or whatever. I think there's a innate and, and wonderful complexity to the biosphere and to life. In many ways, it's so much more complicated and deeper than what humans can come up with, you know? And so that would be my answer. I mean, I, people talk about, oh, the trees in the forest are communicating. Well, yeah, kind of, but as you know, if, uh, if I'm in the African savannah and a lion is, you know, roaring at another lion to get away from its food, that's communication too. It's not always this complex right. thing in terms of sentience. I don't, I mean, if there is, it's, it's not anything that we can comprehend with what we have available. And it's certainly nothing we can really compare to the way that humans or other primates do. I almost think, you know, the fact it's not as simple as that is what's so beautiful about it. There is a an unwavering complexity to all this stuff that we are just beginning to understand, you know, and that's why people study this stuff. You know, someone's grandpa might be whining at Thanksgiving dinner. Why are they putting all this money into studying 
you know, this particular thing that I don't understand that seems inconsequential. Well, there's a number of reasons why to do that. Again, it's you want to figure out what everything in that Jenga tower is uh, mm-hmm. before that Jenga tower falls over. And it's really decoding the biosphere. It's understanding a, an unseen and unheard language, you know, a language that we haven't learned to listen to yet. And so that's exactly. why, you know, there's so much there to study. I mean, there's you could study this stuff your whole life. You'd never know 1% of it. Yeah. And the fascinating thing about plants is that they do have, like, it's funny that you say language because it feels like there is a language with trees, like sending chemical signals to each other when there's insect infestations. I also heard a study that plants make noises when they're being cut or being injured, or maybe at least some chemical noises or something like that. So there definitely is some kind of communication. Probably chemical response for sure. Yeah, I mean, well, that's the thing is I was, you know, a friend of mine actually just met him. Uh, He studies at Cornell and he studies, he's a chemical ecologist. And so they study and they deal with this kind of question all the time. They deal with, you know, do plants communicate? Is the forest communicating with itself? All this. And they, and they, they say basically just what I said is it's, you can't really think of it like that. Right. Technically they are, but it's, it's on a whole other level that we can't really understand. And that we can't compare it to what humans do. But it's when plants communicate, it all does come down to chemicals. It's mostly chemicals. I, I've not, I haven't heard about a plant making a noise when it's injured. I don't know what the benefit of that might be because you have to think in the context of evolution. You know, what's the benefit to the plant? Why does this evolve? Why would it stick around? There's got to be a reason. And so I don't know what the benefit of any noise making might be, but certainly chemicals. I mean, and that's quantifiable. When a leaf is injured, it starts producing more secondary metabolites, more chemistry that will prevent it from being eaten further and hopefully antifungals to prevent fungal infection, et cetera. So. Yeah. When it comes to surviving with plants, I mean, they've adapted some amazing things, especially like in the world of deception from like smells to visually looking different to I'm sure tasting certain ways. The more that I research about plants, the more that I'm like impressed with them. And uh, my mind is just blown that I almost feel like people underestimate plants. I deal with that all the time. I think so too. I mean, it's plant blindness is a thing. I mean, we live in a society and a civilization that first off is in most cases, utterly disconnected from quote unquote nature, right? And when I call, I don't even like using the word nature because it's not really nature. It's the real world. It's the real living world around us, which was here for 99.9999% of the time before humans got here and made all this stuff. So our world is the outlier. Our world is kind of the unreal world. But most of us encounter plants as landscaping, and in which case they're just filler. They're just something to, you know, that's aesthetically pleasing. You don't have to think about it. There's no context for ecology or evolution or how something evolved or why it looks like that or why it produces that certain chemical or right. what its pollinator is, you know, and if you've got a specialist pollinator or something. Or they're just in the way. Plants are just in the way a lot of the times, right? They're just something to clear or get out of the way so you could build a a strip mall or a house or whatever, or farm one specific species of plant, whatever. So, you know, you're passing by them at 80 miles per hour on the freeway and now isn't that. And it's not just with plants, but I encourage with everyone to pay attention more, to become more cognizant of the things around them, the living world around them, whether it's plants or reptiles or rocks. I mean, that's a great thing about the deserts, right? There's not many plants to get in the way of the rocks you want to look at. It's like a down season time. Yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. the dry season, you didn't get a good rain. So At the end of the day, you're going to be much more knowledgeable and aware and cognizant of things that you otherwise would not have been cognizant of, that you otherwise would have been tone deaf to. I mean, it's the planet we live on, for Christ's sakes, man. It's so important. Plants are the foundation of, of the food chain. They're the foundation of everything. So 
there's so many questions to be asked about anything. Again, lichens, reptiles, birds, geology, the cosmos, whatever. You know, there's the number of questions worth asking and, and trying to figure out answers to. Yeah. And I think that's the most important thing is to be curious about the outside world. Go out and experience the real world, experience nature, ask why things are the way they are. And like you said, like really dive right. deep into those wormholes of uh, discovering things. And it shows a lot more appreciation for things. You understand like the balance of nature and like all the ecosystems around you. So yes, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. I feel like I can talk yeah. to you all day about plants and all day about like how everything like interconnects with everything. Where can people find you? I've got a website, crimepaysbabanidoesn't.com, that I try to keep updated with, you know, a lot of photos from different trips I've been on. Like, you know, I was in Brazil and New Zealand this year. I've got Instagram. I got, I got all the social media stuff, Instagram, a TikTok, even though I kind of hate it. But anyway, and then there's, uh, we've been working on a show called Kill Your Lawn. We're on season two now. It's a relatively small scale TV show. It's on a network called Earth X TV. So yeah, I was hoping, I, I don't think you can stream it. I think it's mostly on cable. So you know, okay. that's generally people over the age of 50. I don't know who watches cable anymore, but regardless, <laughs> we basically go out. It's all over the country. We go to San Diego, South Texas, Chicago. Uh, we're doing Baltimore in October, Florida, et cetera. And so we just go around. We convince people to kill their lawns, you know, unless unless you're, you know, you're really into bocce ball or soccer or you're just like laying in the grass. But I, most people, you know, laying in the sun, exposed in the grass in like a hot summer day. I can't really imagine that. But anyway, you know, if you <laughs> like your lawn, keep it. But we're just trying to show people another way. I think a lot of people have lawns. They don't really know why. Kind of stupid. Yeah. It's pain in the ass to mow. And so what another thing you could do is plant a native plant garden and treat mm -hmm. your front yard like a classroom and restore habitat and, you know, get pollinators and cool birds hanging out out there, put a little bench in a corner, get a nice spot to sit and chill after work. And so we're just trying to get people to think about the land they live on differently and also to form a genuine connection with it. So that's what Kill Your Lawn is. And so again, it's on EarthX TV. Oh, I love that idea. I've seen things like that where people like change their lawns to have more plants and more native species in their yards. So it really helps like the communities that they're in. Um, oh, it's but, so nice. It's so yeah. nice too. I mean, I like I, I walk into my front door, I get smacked in the face with like, you know, 10 different butterflies. It's so, there's so much yes. life going off here, you know? And it should be like that. We should all be living together, you know? Totally. And, and that's what used to be here before we built cities on top of everything. So it's, you know. Exactly. Then I've got a YouTube channel. I mean, that's the old standby for me is that, you know, it's where I started doing most of the stuff was on YouTube. And it's just Crime Pays, but Botany Doesn't uh, is the name of the YouTube channel. And it's, you know, I've got episodes from Chile, Western Australia, a lot of stuff from Mexico and the United States. And it's just basically showing people cool plants and then explaining, you know, some of the things we talked about on this episode. Well, thank you so much for coming on Little Curiosities. Definitely. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Little Curiosities. I had so much fun talking to Joey. He just has so much knowledge. I can just pick his brain forever about botany and so many interesting plant stories. Who knew plants were so wild? you know? And they're really deceptive. They really can fool you. 
I think it's interesting that plants even have adapted to fool humans in some scenarios. So crazy. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Little Curiosities if you haven't already, so you don't miss a single episode. Also, if you liked what you heard, please make sure to share this episode with someone you think would find it interesting. If you made it to the end of this episode, you must have found it interesting, right? I really enjoy putting this podcast together because each week I do a lot of research and learn so many new things while I'm making these episodes. So anything you can do to help get this podcast out there and keep it running would mean so much. So thank you for listening and I'll see you next week. Ciao. Little Curiosities with Kendall Long is a Q Code production. Executive produced by David Henning and Steve Wilson. Produced by Alexa Gabrielle Ramirez. Co-produced by Ellie Katopfish. Edited by Will Tendy. Music by Kendall Long and Will Tendy. Hey guys, Heather Ashley here, host of the Big Mad True Crime Podcast. If you're looking for a true crime podcast with all of the details and none of the small talk, you have found your people. Each week, we dive deep into a new case and learn everything there is to know, from getting to know the victim and the impact their cases had on those around them, to the investigation into what happened to them and who is or might be responsible. And if the bad guy looks like he might drink whiskey by a dumpster or has the social skills of an ogre, we say it because we were all thinking it anyway. As the name suggests, we get big mad over true crime, and I would love to have you join our incredible community of listeners with big hearts and zero time for small talk. Subscribe to Big Mad True Crime anywhere you listen to podcasts and listen to new episodes every single Monday. Whether you're in a relationship, single, or recently heartbroken, you could be navigating some tough stuff. And it really can be challenging to do this on your own. We all need help when it comes to our relationships, very specifically, our love lives. I'm Jillian, and each week on my podcast, Jillian on Love, I share skills on how to strengthen our relationships, how to build a stronger sense of self, and how to heal heartbreak and choose better partners. Learn how to start making change today and search for Jillian on Love wherever you're listening now.